Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. Happy to have you back here with me again this week. From the magazine, Scientific American. No one can explain why airplanes stay in the air. On a strictly mathematical level, engineers know how to design planes that will stay aloft. But equations don't explain why aerodynamic lift occurs. There are two competing theories that illuminate the forces and factors of lift. Both are incomplete explanations. Aerodynamicists have recently tried to close the gaps in understanding. Still, no consensus exists. Is that surprising to you? No one can explain why airplanes stay in the air. That's true. Before this pandemic, did you have an inaccurate, unhealthy, exaggerated perception of the world's intellectuals? Has this pandemic perhaps brought your perception into a little bit better, more accurate balance? Well, if it hasn't, it probably should have. A mere three weeks ago, according to science, cloth masks were absolutely worthless for stopping aerosol transmission. Science said that for a fact, cloth masks were pointless and that any benefit was entirely psychological. That was a mere three months ago. Now, as you know, apparently the laws of science have mysteriously changed because now science says cloth masks still don't stop aerosol transmission. It's like throwing sand at a chain-link fence. But for some reason, it's now still important to wear them anyway. A fake comedy news site recently had this headline. Scientists who didn't predict a single thing accurately for the last two months, confident they know what the weather is going to be like in 100 years. Uh, last week, I was watching some classic science fiction movie. I wish I could remember which one it was, but I can't. In the movie, a scientist is talking to another guy about the world's population. At that time, when the movie was made, 
the human population on Earth was around 2 billion people or something like that. And the scientist showed this other guy his scientific projections and stated that by the year 2010, the world's population would definitely be a whopping 3.5 billion people. Now, he didn't say it might be 3.5 billion people, but that it would be 3.5 billion people. Well, as you know, the current human population of the earth is not 3.5 billion people. In fact, it's nearly 8 billion people. And yeah, I know it was a science fiction movie, but where do you reckon they got their numbers when they were writing that scene into the movie? Well, they got it from real science at the time. No one can explain why airplanes stay in the air. Scientists are unable to explain why human beings age or why we have to sleep. Did you know that being taught that it is a determined fact that oil is a fossil fuel is a lie? Scientists have not in any way proven that oil is really a fossil fuel. They're literally just guessing that it is a fossil fuel. Other theories by reputable scientists suggest that oil could be a naturally occurring resource like water. Don't believe me? Look it up when you finish listening to this show. I remember my dad telling me that uh, 30 years ago. And for some reason that come back into my head here in the last five years or something like that. And I thought, I wonder if that's still the case. And I looked it up and, and sure it is. It sure is. Uh, oil could be a naturally occurring resource like water. Nobody knows. Um, but <laughs> we can say this. That theory, as far out as that might seem to you, is no less proven than the theory that oil is a fossil fuel. It not that mind-boggling to you? It is to me. Yes, humans have a lot of knowledge and accomplishments to be proud about. And maybe you're wondering what's all this got to do with emotional health and borderline personality disorder and these sorts of things. Well, because it's nice and healthy from time to time to keep things in accurate context so that we see the sources of information are just people. And uh, we recognize that these people are fallible. And so we're not just walking around believing that they're gods, right? You go to a doctor. The doctor says, you have cancer, we have to operate right now. What's the first thing you say? I want a second opinion. I want to know what somebody else is going to tell you. What, what are my options there? Maybe they're going to come to an entirely different conclusion. Is that because the person doesn't believe in medicine? No, it's absolutely ridiculous to suggest that because somebody wants a second opinion when they go to a doctor and they get a serious diagnosis like that, it's ridiculous to suggest that because they want a second opinion that they don't believe in medicine, right? 
where is the the real source of not distrust but uh, lack of surety, lack of you know complete confidence? Where is the doubt coming from? It's coming from the fact that behind medicine are people, right? Medicine just is medicine, but behind medicine there's just people. And wisdom says that maybe this doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. Or maybe he doesn't have as much experience as another doctor. Maybe he doesn't have the insight that another doctor might have. Distrust in medicine's got nothing to do with it. It's the recognition that people are just people. Scientists can't explain why we yawn. Scientists can't explain why cats purr. Scientists don't understand, and this one blows me away, scientists don't understand why bicycles are able to keep themselves stable while in motion. (laughs) You probably think I'm making some of these up. I'm not. Uh, Scientists don't understand why bicycles, why bicycles are able to keep themselves stable while in motion. Scientists don't understand why we dream. It's interesting how many people, maybe you listening to this, tense up and get angry when the reliability of scientists or of experts are questioned. And it's very popular in some circles to assert that there is an anti-science bias in the world. That there are literally millions of people who don't believe in science. But is that true? No, that's not true. That's not a real thing, not believing in science. You know, even these groups like uh, that I think are pretty far out there, like the Flat Earth Society, you know, I don't... <laughs> I think that's crazy to believe that the Earth is flat, but, you know... Um, <clears throat> I'm not trying to insult anybody. I'm just saying that I personally believe that that is uh, a really far-fetched notion. But even that group of people, the Flat Earth Society, do, do they not believe in science? They believe in science. The people they distrust are the sources of information explaining science. Do they have some good reasons for distrusting scientists? Of course they do. I mean, if... If this pandemic has not taught you that, (laughs) you've been asleep. Which one of you have gotten only accurate information about what uh, COVID-19 is? How many of you, since this thing started, have just been getting deluged with facts? None of us, right? Instead, what we've been getting is a bunch of information that we have to sort through. And try to decide for ourselves what's fact and what's not, right? And every day it changes. And these aren't just, um, this isn't just misinformation coming from your next door neighbor. This is coming from the World Health Organization and the CDC. These trusted institutions that a lot of people had great faith in. Well, this experience, if it has not taught you the fallibility of these institutions... Uh, it probably should have. Early on, I told you all about metonymy. Remember me talking about metonymy? What is metonymy? Metonymy 
is a deceptively persuasive feature of language intended to blur or conceal the real actors behind the scenes while at the same time inflating their credentials sub in the subconscious minds of people. Metonymy. So, for example, the White House issued a statement is metonymy. The White House can't issue a statement because it's an inanimate building. Somebody specifically inside the White House authored that statement, not the White House itself. But do you see how when you say the White House issued a statement, now the statement appears to carry great weight, seriousness, and authority, doesn't it? Even if it was just the janitor who actually issued the statement. So it's not a lie that it came from the White House, but, but we're concealing who, who really authored that statement, what position they're in, how trustworthy that individual is, and we're inflating in the, in the subconscious minds of the person who hears that statement, the White House issued a statement, we're inflating the credentials of that statement. Right? If we knew who actually authored the statement rather than just the White House, maybe it would allow room for doubt that the statement has much credence. So science made a new discovery today is metonymy. Science can't do anything. It's not a conscious thing. You know, just like <laughs> math and geometry can't rent a condominium and hang out together at the beach over the weekend. Math and geometry are not conscious things. Science is not a conscious thing. So this deceptive persuasion that science made a new discovery today, what does that conceal? It conceals that what we're actually talking about are some very specific scientists. So remember this. Every time you hear people talking about science this and science that, almost never are they really talking about science. Instead, they're talking about specific, unknown scientists. People, in other words. And what do we know about people? That people are fallible, prone to personal bias, confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance, etc. They're prone to all the things that human beings are prone to. And if you think that the peer review system prevents this, you're terribly mistaken. Uh, recently, it was either the New York Times or you know some very reputable news source did a study on the peer review system and determined that uh, for all intents and purposes, it's entirely worthless. I've just done a quick Google search here, and uh, what's come up here is the Sydney Morning Herald from Australia. Uh, it says, peer review system is flawed, scientists say. Uh, this is from January 18th, 2003. It says, a report due out this month from an international collaboration of scientists will argue that the time-honored system of peer review, which has existed in some form for at least 200 years, is possibly bunk. Tom Jefferson of the Cochrane Collaboration Methods Group said, 
if peer review were a new medicine, it would never get a license. He goes on to say, we have found little empirical evidence to support the use of peer review as a mechanism to ensure the quality of research reporting. And there is even more depressing evidence about its value in deciding what should be funded. Uh, the study focused on biomedical research, but there was no reason to assume that the inefficiency of this system would not pertain across other scientific disciplines. Dr. Jefferson's team scrutinized 135 studies designed to assess the evidence that peer review was an effective method of deciding what should be published. We had great difficulty in finding any real hard evidence of the system's effectiveness, which is disappointing as peer review is the cornerstone of editorial policies worldwide, he said. How about the Pulitzer, right? A Pulitzer Prize. You maybe think that uh, the Pulitzer Committee is made up a bunch of a, a bunch of geniuses, and they comb through tons and tons of uh, accomplishments and material throughout the year, and uh, they pick out the very best. And by this this huge committee of these brainiacs, the world's elite, they come to a consensus, right, about who should get a Pulitzer Prize. That's not how it works. It's it's like three people. <laughs> Something like three people, um, based only on what they personally have consumed or read or seen them for themselves. You know, they're not going out and combing through tons and tons of everything that's being produced and, and made and done. No, it's just whatever they cross paths with in that year. Uh, and then the th three people, four people, five people maybe, decide, hey, let's give this person a, a Pulitzer. That is the Pulitzer Prize. You see the illusion around that. But uh, I was listening to Scott Adams talk. He's the guy who draws um, Dilbert, the comic strip. And uh, he said that he was always interested in getting a Pulitzer until he met somebody. <laughs> he met somebody whose wife was on the committee, and he started asking about the Pulitzer process and everything, and it turned out it's all illusion. It's all illusion. And he didn't really find uh, this man and his wife to be all that intelligent in the first place. And these are the people behind the Pulitzer. So again, got a little off track there, but the idea is that <clears throat> we want our perspectives to be accurate, right? We want to look at the world and understand it accurately, no matter what our feelings feel about a thing we want to be able to look at a thing and understand it accurately so that's why i brought up that whole discussion this morning before we get started into today's topic which is uh what is a bpd episode before we get started on that i want to tell you about my website it's the last .com. a bunch of free resources over there i uh, make them available for you because i care about your recovery. I want everybody to have equal access to that stuff, but there are also some paid services and the paid services are what allow me to continue doing this work. It's what has allowed, has allowed me to do this thus far. And hopefully I'll be able to keep doing it for 
the foreseeable future. So um, your support with donations um, and using the paid services that I offer are what allow this work to continue, the, the last symptom work. Let's get into today's topic. An episode, what is a borderline personality disorder episode? The term episode is a false notion term coined to describe seemingly temporary blatant symptoms of borderline personality disorder from an outsider's perspective. So flying off the handle in disproportionate rage without any reasonable cause from an outsider's perspective, right, is an example. Is the person's rage disproportionate and without any reasonable cause? Not from their perspective. Not from the way they're perceiving the, the circumstance. But from the outsider's perspective, who has no context, the rage seems disproportionate and does not seem to have a reasonable cause. Getting blind drunk for the purpose of drowning out negative feelings is an example of an episode. Hitting on another woman behind your wife's back with the intention of cheating, and this is important, for the purpose of replenishing your constant need for external affirmation is an example of an episode. Isolating yourself away from all your loved ones, and here's the important part, for the purpose of avoiding intimacy is an example of an episode. Any unhealthy negative symptom of the disorder that temporarily manifests in a noticeable way is considered a borderline personality disorder quote-unquote episode according to many authorities on the subject. But now remember... I said it's a false notion term. Now, you'll notice that the examples that I just gave, in each one, I highlighted the driving force behind each quote-unquote episode, which is in reality the only significant detail. For example, getting drunk in itself is not an indicator of emotional unhealth. But now doing it in order to avoid processing a negative feeling is an indicator of emotional unhealth. How about cheating on your wife? Well, that's a personal decision. And whether outsiders agree with it or not, cheating on your mate, that action alone, is not an indicator of an emotional disorder. If you're cheating because you're incapable of generating your own inner affirmation, then it is a symptom of emotional disorder. Do you see that the reason behind the behavior is all that matters for purposes of determining if it's an unhealthy symptom or not? The behavior itself is almost insignificant, almost completely insignificant. Emotionally healthy people get drunk sometimes. Some emotionally healthy people choose to have affairs. 
So it's not the act itself that can be classified as healthy or unhealthy. Instead, it's the motivating force behind that action. At the root of borderline personality disorder, the seed from which every part of it sprouts are two subconscious, unhealthy, distorted certainties or beliefs, perspectives, all right? And I've explained these in the past in great detail. Number one, the person lives with the certainty that their feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth. And number two, they live with the certainty that if their feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth, then I must be too, because our feelings are us. Our thinking, our feelings, our behaviors, our habits, our reactions are all inescapably directly influenced by this root or central or underlying cause, the two distorted core beliefs I just mentioned. The reason I say episode is a false notion term is because there is never at any moment of any day, week, or year, a time when a person with borderline personality disorder is not experiencing a quote-unquote episode. You see, borderline personality disorder is not something that just kicks in from time to time, like an allergy. What is the number one symptom that people with borderline personality disorder experience? Do you know what it is? The number one symptom. So we've got the cause, which underlies everything else. From the cause sprouts the natural symptoms. What is the number one symptom that people with borderline personality disorder experience? It's distorted perspective. Distorted perspective never, ever gets shut off. It's never not in effect. And every one of the other symptoms are symptoms of this symptom. The only thing that changes is how obvious symptoms are to others. The obviousness of these symptoms. The term episode implies that the symptoms of the disorder spring into existence within the person and then disappear but is that the reality of what's actually happening? No. The symptoms are always active. Always. The person with borderline personality disorder may suppress one symptom or another for brief periods of time, or the energy behind one symptom may get redirected to fuel instead a different symptom. But the force fueling the symptoms is always always fully active. It never wanes. It never goes away. It never takes a break. Let me use an illustration that can highlight exactly what I'm talking about. If I live with the perspective that there's a poisonous gas outside floating in the air, that's the underlying perspective I live with. Imagine how that affects my behavior. First of all, 
I probably will avoid going outside at all. But if I do go outside, I'm most certainly not going outside without a gas mask, right? Is there ever a moment during the day where the force, the natural forces that my perspective creates are not in effect? No. It affects everything I do that involves going outside, right? It involves whether I open up my windows or not. It affects everything. I, in fact, I have to plan everything around that underlying belief, or don't I? I? I don't ever just run out to the car and drive to the grocery store just willy-nilly. Not if that's my underlying perspective. It's always there, always informing me and influencing my decisions. So when we talk about folks with borderline personality disorder, the primary symptom that they live with is distorted perspective. And these distorted, this, these distorted perspectives give birth to other distorted perspectives and influence and inform everything that the person does. You can see now why I say it's always in effect. There's never a time when a person forgets you know, when a person who has borderline personality disorder forgets that they're devoid of worth. Th- this is always active. It's the underlying certainty about the nature of feeling self and life that they live with. So, of course, it informs literally everything they do. It's always in effect. It's in, the, it's in effect from the moment they wake up. It's in effect in their dreams. It's in effect when they go into the bathroom and take a shower and get ready in the morning. It's in effect in the way that they communicate and interact with other people. It's in effect in uh, influencing their behaviors and their decisions when, uh, with any type of relationship that they have. When they're alone in their own house or their own room, it's always in effect. So, An episode is really just the outsider getting a look at something that becomes too loud or obvious to ignore. The now obvious symptom doesn't make sense from the observer's frame of reference. Let me give you an example of that. A person uh, goes into a rage, right? To outsiders, they don't understand where is this coming from. It seems very disproportionate. But that's because they don't have the context of where it's being born from. A person who lives with the belief that they're inherently devoid of worth, that they're irrelevant, what kind of, what kind of uh, treatment are they expecting from the world? Are they expecting to be treated well when they go to a restaurant? Are they expecting life to treat them well? Or are they always on edge waiting for the universe to confirm what they already believe, that they're worthless. So you see that when they order their food and it comes to the table undercooked, from their perspective, this is now salt in a wound. The universe, this restaurant, from the person with borderline personality disorders perspective, is confirming a painful reality 
that the person with borderline personality disorder already believes that he or she is worthless and this is just confirming it. Now the rage begins to make sense. The person isn't viewing the undercooked food as just some random thing that could happen to anybody. No, they're viewing it as a personal affront, a personal confirmation of something painful that they already believe and have lived with for many, many years. So the person goes into a rage. From their perspective, there's nothing illogical about it at all. And it's not disproportionate. If you were viewing the, the situation with the exact same perspective, believe me, you would go into a rage too. So when the professional community talks about an episode, it's not truly an episode. It's not something that has just kicked in. It's not just something that's kicked in from nowhere. No, the person was already walking around with the underlying causes, the underlying perspectives, the underlying painful painful perspectives, I should say, to set the stage for this. The episode is really just the outsider getting a look at something that becomes obvious, too loud to ignore. The now obvious symptom doesn't make sense to the observer's frame of reference. But it's not as if the same thought distortions that caused this outburst weren't influencing the person just as strongly 10 minutes ago or wasn't in, uh, influencing that person just as strongly yesterday. No, he's been walking around with those perspectives all the time. Through those perspectives, he's interpreting incorrectly this situation that he finds himself in. He's filtering it through that, that premise that he's worthless. Incidentally, the only reason any behavior or reaction a person with borderline personality disorder exhibits doesn't make sense to an observer is because the observer lacks context. An emotionally healthy person observing that behavior from that person is not viewing that situation from the same foundation from which the person suffering with borderline personality disorder is operating. So the reactions of this person, the way their behavior, their outburst, can seem confusing. But again, it's only because of the lack of context. If any of us understood the context, the outburst would make perfect sense. The context, of course, being whatever perspective that person is operating on. What premise are they going into this situation with? So, by learning about the two distorted core beliefs, which I mentioned earlier, an observer not only gains context to understand these behaviors and reactions, but also to recognize all of the person's behaviors and thought processes in the correct context so that it's not a complete mystery, it's not bewildering, but instead it makes perfect sense. With this information, one can actually begin to predict with a fair degree of accuracy how any person with borderline personality disorder is in all probability going to react or respond in different situations. So, if this is your first time listening to the program, let me say this. Nobody has to continue to live with borderline personality disorder. You can eliminate it. 
And no, I didn't say you can live a life controlling the symptoms. I said eliminate it. So I invite you to listen to the other episodes of this program. You can browse my article library over at thelastsymptom.com. If you'd be interested in knowing how to do this for yourself, or if you're interested in researching the subject and understanding somebody you care about better who has borderline personality disorder and maybe encouraging them to not settle on the idea of just controlling symptoms endlessly, but instead use that same energy and time and effort into just getting rid of the disorder once and for all. I did it, which is why I do this work at all, because I know the misinformation out there. I know the barriers to authentic recovery, and I'm trying to help expedite anybody's efforts out there who is in a situation that I was once in. My heart goes out to you folks, and I I want to see you accomplish the same thing that I've accomplished. That's really the, the long and short of it. Well, before we go, how about if I tell you a campfire story? I've talked about my best friend Jordan in the past. He died in a car accident in 2005, and he was very dear to me. But I haven't told you a lot of stories about him, and maybe I need to change that because he was an exceptional human being, (laughs) and we sure had a lot of experiences together. A lot of my younger crowd... We'll find this hard to believe, but back in the day, there were no such thing as cell phones. And there was no such thing as caller ID. The phone rang, and uh, it was always a wild guess who it might be. You say, wow, how archaic, right? But it did offer some interesting possibilities. For example, you could prank call people, and they would have no idea of who you were, that have no idea, no way of finding out who you were. So as teenagers, we went through a stage where we liked to prank call people uh, for kicks. And one night Jordan was staying over at my house, and we were up late, and he says, I'll tell you what, I bet you uh, that you can't call a random number, just any number, and keep the person on the phone for two full minutes. I thought about it, and I said, all right, I'm going to take you up on that bet. So I said, hand me the phone. He said, all right, I'm going to pick the number. I said, all right, dial whatever number you want to. So he dialed the number. And now remember, what I have to do is get somebody on the phone and managed to keep them on the phone for a full two minutes. You know, two minutes doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're talking to somebody that you have no experience with whatsoever, they don't know you and you don't know them. Two minutes is a long time. This was a rotary phone. <laughs> I was about to do a beep, boop, boop, beep sound effect, but... Uh, it wasn't even a touch tone. It was a, this was a rotary phone. And in fact, uh, for many years when I was growing up, we were on a party line. Do you know what a party line is? That's where you share the phone line with everybody in your area. If at any time you had to make a phone call, but your neighbor was on the phone, you couldn't get a call out. You'd pick up the phone and you could hear their conversation because everybody was on the same line. It was just like... If the phone, you know, 
the phone was all in the same house. That's the way it was, but for the whole community. So we lived up on top of a mountain, and uh, there were about five or six other people who lived in that general area. And I remember one time, my dad had to make a phone call. He got on the phone, and the uh, teenager down the street was on the phone with his girlfriend. Uh, my dad uh, sighed and hung the phone up. About an hour later, picked the phone back up and could still hear the guy talking to his girlfriend. My dad hung up, waited patiently. About an hour later, he picks up the phone, needing to make this phone call, and that <laughs> that guy down the road was still on the phone with his girlfriend, and my dad exploded. You know, what, how selfish you are and all this stuff. And that fella uh, ended up getting off the phone, but... <laughs> So that was a party line. And yeah, for many years we had that. So anyway, back to the story. Jordan says, you know, I bet you two, you can't get on the phone with a total stranger and keep him on the phone for two full minutes. I said, all right, give me the phone. He dialed. And when the old lonely lady on the other end of the line answered the phone, I said, hello, ma'am. My name's Brian and I'm here with my friend Jordan and ma'am, I would like you to help me out with something. He's bet me that I can't keep you on the phone for two minutes. Well, it was just my luck that this old retired lonely lady was hungry for anybody to talk to. <laughs> and she and I ended up talking for about an hour and a half. No joke. She would have kept me on the phone for six hours. <laughs> And afterwards, Jordan said, that was that was underhanded, buddy. You, that was cheating. That was cheating. You don't win the bet because you cheated. And I said, no, 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 I did win the bet. There was no such established rules that I couldn't tell the lady exactly what I was doing. Uh, so long story short, I won that bet. And uh, that's a true story. Of course, it's a lot harder to do with iPhones today and you know everybody can track you and know exactly who you are and do a reverse Google search on you and all these things but there were some good times back in the day when everybody was on landlines ladies and gentlemen one last time I'd like to remind you about thelastsymptom.com check it out take use of, uh, full use of the free resources there support my work with the paid services or leave me a donation sponsor a call for somebody else. Lots of uh, options there. And I hope you're having the best week of all time. Remember to be more patient and kind with yourself than anybody else will be. It really does start with you. And the way you view yourself and the way you treat yourself, the patience and the compassion you show yourself is going to go a long way in how you view and treat other people. It all starts with you. So I, uh, I send you my well wishes. I apologize for getting the, uh, this episode of the podcast out late this week. Next week, I am going on a backpacking trip in the mountains in West Virginia. So I've been preparing for that. It's, been, it's going to be the first time I've been in the woods, really, since March, right before this pandemic began. So that's what I'm looking forward to. I hope you guys have good plans for yourselves. Enjoy this weekend and the coming week.